Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Welcome to the mansion on the hill. This is the home of Terry's mysterious moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness, of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. This is Terry from Texas with another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 4. Have you ever seen a crisis apparition? Do you know what a crisis apparition is? Well, I didn't know what they were called, but I had heard about them for years. According to the Paranormal Dictionary, they are as follows. A crisis apparition is an apparition that is seen when a person is seriously ill, seriously injured, at the point of death, or has passed away. At the time of their death, they might appear to you and give you a message before vanishing. Some people have reported seeing a loved one as long as 24 to 48 hours after they passed away. They may also come to you or appear in your dreams after they die. The crisis apparition is the most reported type of ghost spirit sighting. Well, I don't know with any certainty about that last part of it, as so many of the reports and stories I read have to do with mostly replays of situations past. But I have read of a number of stories to do with this type of apparitional situation. A story from Central Texas was the story of Josiah Wilbarger. This one gets weird as it involves a crisis apparition and a message in a dream. So maybe two types of crisis apparitions here. In August of 1833, Josiah Wilbarger and three companions were surveying land in Central Texas in what is now within the limits of the city of Austin. But these were the days before Austin had been established and the line of Anglo settlements ended at the Colorado River. The men were land speculators who had spent the previous night eight miles downriver at the home of Reuben and Sarah Hornsby at what is known as Hornsby's Bend. This was the extreme frontier of the Texas of the 1830s and Will Barger and his friends were taking a risk venturing so far beyond the settlement line. Will Barger and his brother Matthias had come to Texas in December of 1826. For a year, Josiah taught school at Matagorda before moving north to LaGrange in Fayette County. Later, Josiah and his wife Margaret moved farther up the Colorado River to a site 10 miles up the river from Bastrop. Margaret was only 19 years old when Josiah sent for her to come to Texas. Unwilling to give up all the luxuries of the life she was leaving, 
Margaret had come to Texas on horseback with her feather mattress rolled up and tied behind her saddle. On this day in August, Josiah and his three companions had stopped in the middle of the day for lunch in a grove of trees at Pecan Springs in what is now East Austin. They had just finished their noon meal when they were attacked by Indians. One of the surveyors, a man named Struther, was killed immediately, but two members of the party managed to reach their horses. Will Barger had unsaddled his horse when the men had stopped for lunch, so he attempted to climb on behind one of the two men who had been able to mount. Just as he reached for the back of the saddle to swing himself on, an arrow grazed his neck and he fell to the ground, still conscious but unable to move. Believing Will Barger to be dead, the two men who had survived the initial attack rode away. Will Barger, paralyzed by the arrow, watched helplessly as the Indians took off Struthers' clothes and scalped him. One can only imagine the terror Will Barger must have felt as he was approached by the Indians. The Indians pulled off Will Barger's clothes and prepared to scalp him. Scalping was a two-step process. First a cut was made around the top of the head. Then the scalp was removed by grabbing the hair and jerking. When the Indian jerked to remove Will Barger's scalp, Will Barger later remembered that he heard a sound like thunder and lost consciousness. Later that afternoon, Will Barger regained consciousness. All was quiet on the banks of the springs, the Indians had left, and his friends were nowhere to be seen. Will Barger was not certain how long he had been unconscious. Weak but very thirsty, Will Barger crawled to the nearby creek for water. To protect his head, he packed mud on his wound. Will Barger's two companions, Haney and Christian, made their way back to Hornsby's Bend where they reported the attack and what they believed to be the death of Struther and Will Barger. It was too late in the day to safely return to the scene of the attack, and plans were made to return the next day to retrieve the bodies of the two men. Meanwhile, Will Barger realized that he was too weak from the loss of blood to make it back to Hornsby's, so he propped himself up against a large tree, and for several hours he lapsed in and out of consciousness. During the long night, Will Barger's sister, Margaret Clifton, who lived in Missouri, appeared to him in a dream and said to him, Josiah, stay where you are and your friends will come get you. That night, back at the Hornsby's Bend, Sarah Hornsby was also dreaming. She dreamed that Will Barger was wounded and bleeding but alive. She awoke Reuben to tell him what she had seen in her dream, but he replied, It's just a dream, Sarah. Go back to sleep. Sarah did go back to sleep, but again the dream came to her, so she got up and prepared breakfast, determined to send her husband and the other men off at first light to find Will Barger. Retracing their path back to the scene of the attack, the men found Will Barger propped up against a tree at the edge of the creek. He was so covered in blood that at first the men did not recognize him, but Will Barger called out to them. Cleaning the wound as best that circumstances would allow, the men then took Will Barger back to Hornsby's Bend, where Sarah cared for him. A messenger was sent down the Colorado to Will Barger's wife to tell her of the tragedy that had befallen her husband and his friends, and Margaret went to the Hornsby place to care for her husband. After Josiah had recovered sufficiently, Margaret had a wagon packed with feather mattresses and took Josiah home. 
News of the attack in Josiah's dream was sent to his sister in Missouri. Word came back several weeks later that his sister had died the day of the Indian attack. Josiah Wilbarger lived for several years after the attack at Pecan Springs. He never fully recovered from his wounds, though, and he wore a greased sock over the top of his head for protection. When a new doctor came to the area, Josiah was among the first to seek treatment in hopes of gaining some relief from the constant pain. Josiah and Margaret continued to live on the Colorado River, where Josiah was a cotton farmer. One morning he was entering his gin house and struck his head going in the small door. The blow caused his wound to rupture and he died on April 11, 1844. Josiah was survived by his wife and five children. Wilbarger County in West Texas is named for Josiah and his brother. Another story comes from old San Antonio. Born in Donegal, Ireland in 1785, John McMullen immigrated to the U.S., first to Baltimore, Maryland, then to Savannah, Georgia. In 1810, he married Esther Espadas Cummings, a widow with two children. She seems to have had Spanish connections, which may have contributed to the decision to move the family to the boomtown of Matamoros in newly independent Mexico in the early 1820s. There, John and Esther adopted another child, a nine-year-old boy called Jose Antonio de Jesus, while one of Esther's children from her first marriage married a Sligo man called James McGloin. Together, McMullen and McGloin established a merchandising business which quickly became successful. Following Texan independence in 1836, McMullen sold most of his land to McGloin and settled at San Antonio, where he became a successful merchant and farmer. He kept a foot in politics too, becoming temporary president of the General Council of the New Texan Republic. All the while he was buying up land, and by the mid-1840s, he was a wealthy man, a familiar and impressive figure in his black cape and black hat, on the streets of San Antonio de Bejar. It all came to a shocking end on the night of January 20th, 1853, when an unknown assailant entered McMullen's home, bound and gagged him and slit his throat, leaving him to bleed to death. James McGloin sat beside a fire, warming himself on a cold winter night at his home in San Patricio. He had just returned from a trip into Mexico and the last few miles McGloin had been in a depression and felt a sense of foreboding and thus was happy to be in familiar surroundings. Suddenly he heard the sound of wings frantically beating at his front door. He turned toward the door to see a white mist form and then before him appeared the grim and bloody image of his father-in-law, John McMullen. He was wearing a white shirt covered in blood that was still spurting from a vicious wound across his throat. Shocked beyond belief, he stared at the specter, not knowing what to do. After a few moments had passed, and the thing was still there, he had finally worked up enough courage to speak. What do you want, John? He asked it. The specter looked at him and then slowly dissolved before McGloin's eyes. McGloin, shocked but spurred to action, quickly saddled his horse, telling his family what had just happened he rode at a gallop for San Antonio. Now it was approximately 118 miles to San Antonio and neither horse nor rider had been given time for proper rest but they made best haste. 
The weary pair came into San Antonio in time to hear the bells of San Fernando Cathedral toll the Angelus. Angels were glowing in McMullen's house, and a number of men were milling about on the porch. McGloin dismounted, and his trusted horse gave out and fell dead at his feet. One of the men asked McGloin how he had heard about the incident so quickly, and McGloin said he had had a feeling he needed to get to San Antonio. He was led into the front parlor, and there was McMullen, laid out in a coffin. A rough stitching job showed his throat had been cut, as the apparition had shown. Though local tradition insists that McMullen's adopted son was the killer, this extraordinary historical murder has never been solved. James, or Santiago to the Mexican locals, McGloin, figures in another form of story about a crisis apparition that took place at his home in San Patricio. It was a story of lost love, young love. It is the story of the lady in green. It all starts with the Mexican fort of Lipantitlan, near San Patricio, under the command of a young captain, Marcelino Garcia. The Irish of San Patricio had a cannon that was lent to the young captain by the impresario James McGloin to help fight off the Indians. The young captain became friendly with McGloin and took supper at the McGloin house often. The two were friends and shared much. Garcia told them of his lovely young fiancée back in Mexico. Soon he would marry her and bring her to the fort. Frontier life would be both difficult and hard for the young senorita, but he was sure it would be tempered by the friendly Irish of San Patricio. Fighting during the war for Texas independence began in Gonzales and San Antonio, and the captain received orders from Santa Ana. The cannon was not to be returned to the Irish. In response... The Texan force attacked and captured Fort Lipantitlan, and the young captain was gravely injured. McGloin rushed the captain to his home, hoping that he would be better cared for there. McGloin, fearful but hopeful, sent a letter to the young girl in Mexico by courier, alerting her of the captain's condition. Garcia grew worse and worse as the days passed, yet he hung on as if he was waiting for something. Hope had faded as Garcia neared death's door, and the priest readied for last rites. It was then that she appeared, a young senorita of tremendous beauty, dressed in a long gown made of green silk. She moved to Garcia's bedside gracefully, looking not to either side. The captain looked up, seeing the girl, tried to embrace her, but his arms passed right through her form. No one can say when she disappeared, or if she left the way she had come. She just wasn't there anymore. She returned daily, though, ever watchful over her captain. She watched until the day that Garcia passed away. McGloin buried Garcia on the hill in the little cemetery. They were shocked, though, to find that the woman still returned to sit by the bed where the young man had laid dying. It was as though she didn't know that Garcia had passed away. The lady continued to return for quite a while, and the McGloin family soon came to accept it. Then she just stopped coming. The McGloins presumed that she too had passed away, and now the two were together again. The ghostly visitations had ceased when the love that had caused them in the first place was continued 
on a different plane of existence. In previous shows, I have told stories of this type of situation happening, particularly in wartime. Odd thing, as in the previous story, it's not the person in danger who appears to others. It's a loved one appearing to the one in danger to lead them to safety. There are many accounts in which the ghostly appearance of loved ones is credited, often by the soldiers themselves, with saving their lives. One account of a Canadian soldier who believed he had been saved by the apparition of his mother is quoted in this soldier's letter home, which said, One night, while carrying bombs, I had occasion to take cover when about 20 yards off, I saw you looking towards me as plain as life. Dumbstruck, he said he crawled nearly to the place where your vision appeared as a German shell slammed into the place he had just left behind. Had it not been for you, I certainly would have been reported missing, the soldier wrote. You'll turn up again next time a shell is coming, won't you, mother? Another form of the crisis apparition is described in this story. One of the most famous World War I ghost stories concerns the British retreat from Mons early in the war in 1914. Heavily outnumbered by the Germans and suffering an unsustainable casualty rate, British units were forced to retreat on the 24th of August. However, during this retreat, a rather remarkable thing is alleged to have happened. Some soldiers claim that a ghostly host descended and blocked the Germans from advancing, covering the retreat of the British. Tired soldiers hallucinating the intervention of a supernatural force? Possibly. But what is remarkable about this story is how embedded it became within the psyche of the common Tommy, due to the press speculation about the event and how much it varied when retold. In some accounts, the intervening force was just a spectral cloud. In others, the ghostly figures of St. George and mounted knights or bowmen appeared. In an account of another Canadian soldier saved by his brother, this was the story. Wiping away sleep, he looked with amazement at his brother Steve, who had been reported missing in action in 1915. Steve led him through some ruins when he suddenly rounded a corner and disappeared. Settling for sleep in the new location, he dismissed his brother's ghostly appearance as a hallucination. But in the morning, he was stunned to learn that the other two soldiers under the tarp where he had left had suffered a direct hit from a high explosive shell and were dismembered beyond all recognition. A story told in World War II, but regarding a World War I incident, goes as follows. On an autumn night along the Aisne in 1916, a Captain A was to show Lieutenant B the fields of fire that their group commanded. This required the two men to go forward to a lonely and eerie OP, or observation post, to see both sides of the lines of fire. An OP was used to send signals back to command when enemy movements were noted and how best to adjust fire to respond. The OP was odd in that much of the protective material consisted of the stacked bodies of dead Germans. For some odd reason, bodies didn't decompose normally in that area along the Somme, 
Something in the soil turned the skin to something looking like alabaster. That night the Germans, or Bosch, laid on a terrible artillery barrage, and neither the captain nor the lieutenant returned to the relative comfort of their home trenches. Not to worry, though, there were quite a few dugouts where they could have taken shelter. A Colonel Ponder was telling this story, and he relates that the next morning a major apple tree appeared in report, looking somewhat pale and shaken. When Ponder inquired after him, Appletree replied, I have seen Lieutenant B. Ponder said, Good, he got back all right then? Appletree said, No, he's dead. Ponder demanded an explanation. Appletree said, He suddenly appeared in the door of my dugout, and I said, Ah, so you're back to report all right then? And B said, No, I'm not back to report, sir, only to tell you that I was killed last night. Ponder closed this extraordinary story by saying, and he was too, shell splinter in to the back of the ear and right through his head. Sometimes a crisis apparition is seeking justice or to be laid to rest properly, such as this next tale. As the Jacobite rebellion played itself out after Culloden, thus ending the Stuart-centric attempt at claiming the English throne, English troops remained in the area much as an occupying force, ready and able to put down any rebellions. One such British soldier was one Sergeant Arthur Davies. This Sassanach was apparently well-liked in the area of his posting in Dubrock. He was quickly accepted due to his being a well-tempered man, a just and fair man, and a good husband to his young wife. In England, he lived a good life, being comfortable in his finances. In Scotland, though, he must have looked like a wealthy target for those inclined to achieving wealth at the cost of depriving others of theirs. One morning, the sergeant was about to undertake a trip toward Glenshee to meet a king's patrol from there. His wife saw him off at the door, and he was gone. On the way, he was to gather several other men for the trip, and did, but then left the group to walk out into the countryside in order to possibly score a deer. As the group met the patrol, the sergeant had nay returned. After waiting for a couple of hours, the group set out in search of the wayward sergeant, but to no avail. On the fourth day of his disappearance, a full patrol was mounted, but again, no luck. It was as if the wee folk, the fairies, had taken him. After waiting for months, his wife gave up hope and went back to England. The lodgings the Davies had taken were surrendered to his replacement. Donald Farquharson, son of the owner of the lodging establishment, was manning the house when a man named Alexander McPherson came calling. In short, he'd had a visitation from Sergeant Davies in non-corporeal form. It scared him. He related the story that the sergeant's ghost had visited him quite often, urging the man to search for and reclaim his body for proper burial. He was told the body lay buried in a bog a half mile off the road taken by the patrols. Bury my bones. Bury my bones, is what the specter said over and over. McPherson cried, I won't. I'm scared. The specter told him to go find someone who would do it then, and told him to go to the lodging house owner, Mr. Farquharson, and his son to help find his body. After much pleading, 
Farquharson the Younger accompanied McPherson to the bog indicated, and they began digging. Soon they uncovered bits of cloth the color of Davy's coat, then more clothing, then the bones of the poor Sergeant Davies. Reverentially, for they were both God-fearing men, they removed the bones from the bog. They took them a ways away and did a proper burial, even including a prayer of committal. The bits of clothing, all manner of finery having long been removed, were taken to the local magistrate as evidence of the crime. In the years that followed, accusations were made. Prosecution was performed, but lack of evidence, lack of witnesses, and perhaps lack of interest. For, after all, Davies was a Sassanach, which is an outlander, not a Scotsman. No guilt was adjudicated. Suspects were freed, and Sergeant Davies' body was never interred in a churchyard. Perhaps that's why his spirit still haunts the highlands. Well, there's the story of crisis ghosts. I've heard other stories about men who in World War II, uh, a lot of stories from England about this, about men in World War II who, when they went missing on the record or died in plane crashes, whatever, they would appear to their families. Uh, others, uh, one story I remember, but I don't remember the, the particular situation of it. A pilot was seen walking up the roadway to their family home, and he walked across the yard playing with the dogs. Well, he was seen, so everybody started getting ready for his homecoming meal. And they waited and waited, and he never came in the house. Come to find out, he wasn't anywhere on the property. And then they got messages that he had been killed. So, ghosts like that, if your grandmother appears to you after she passed and tells you, I'm better now, that's, that is uh, what I'm talking about. That's the kind of spirit apparition I'm talking about. I've never had one of those that I know of. So, what do you think? Do you think the people who are in dire need, and, and our stories prove that it's not just the one that's being in danger that appears to others. Others can appear to them, giving them courage, giving them a lift, you know, giving them hope. So, what do you think? I think it's true. If you have stories, I'd like to hear them. You can contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments on Facebook or at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show, where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from Full Dark Productions, from The Witching Hour, and from Unexplained Cases. 
Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android. You can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on, and that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.